This episode of The Taylor Stevens Show is brought to you by listeners, readers, and patrons. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash taylorstevens. New York Times best-selling and award-winning author of Kick-Ass International Thrillers, and this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time. So Taylor, I realized after I had promised uh, a geese story this week that there may not be any because there's been so much flooding and you may not even be able to get out of the house. So are, are we going to be able to deliver on my promise? We shall deliver on the promise. <laughs> So I actually want to do a much longer update on this on Patreon to tell all the Mother Goose stories. But um, one thing in particular is that yay for Francis raising her babies is all four of those, that first batch of geese, they're, they're still alive and they like cluster and flock and whatever. And um, wait a minute. And you're giving Francis credit? Yes, because oh. when they were little, I gave them to her, and I said, here, take care of them. Oh, <laughs> I thought she just kind of snubbed them. No, no, no. not the, the. She was really happy to have them because she was, like, super broody at the time and had been sitting on eggs for quite a while. But they were like, who are you? We don't ah, know you. You're okay. not our mom. And so she she raised them to the best of her ability, but they look, they would follow her and look to her. And because she had already been, like, She's the survivor. She's the one who got old enough to be territorial and learn her territory. I guess she kept them out of trouble, and um, and they all grew up. And so I didn't know when they when I got them, like even for sure what breeds they were or what if they're boys or girls or whatever. But and I didn't really care. I just wanted to give Francis some friends. So it turns out through much trial and error and deduction, I have figured out that they are Chinese geese. And Francis, too, is a Chinese geese. I didn't know, but now that I see that she matches them and I found figured out that these guys are like, okay, she's Chinese geese. And they are notorious for being one of the more aggressive domesticated breeds. But I never experienced that because, A, she was a goose, not a gander, and she was a pet. Like, we, she was a person. And now she's kind of reverted to her goosey ways like she's still no she'll still answer when I call her and she's still like oh hey I remember you and she's really sweet but the other ones never had the same kind of um human interaction that she did so they're yeah and I see the aggression in them especially with the boys <laughs> so two of them turned out to be boys and when I got them, two of them were white and two of them were brown. So two there, there's two white Chinese, two brown Chinese, not counting Francis. And um, and they turned out to be two boys and two girls. So just ironically, like this is so rare. You just by odds, you would never expect to happen. It's a pair of one male, one female white Chinese and one male, one female brown Chinese. And they kind of have taken to each other in that kind of pairing, too, which is really kind of cool. So now Francis is like the fifth wheel. It's like. That was not the plan, but Aww. she's just still there with them, but she just responds to things differently than they do. And they're still young. I think they're only like four months old, which they don't look four months. They look like almost full grown geese, but 
the boys have started to get their attitude. And one in particular does not like me. And I don't really know why he doesn't like me. I have never, geese have very good memories and they know if you've done them wrong. But I don't recall ever doing anything to him that would have made him not like me. Um, like he's never had to have any injections or force feeding or any of the things that you do to try and keep geese alive, you know, animals alive and they take it personally. None of them have ever experienced any of that. And so I really wasn't sure. And the best that I can come up with is Francis likes me and he's a possessive jerk. (laughs) (laughs) And, and she doesn't like it that I like to think that she doesn't like it, that he gets aggressive with me because she bites him. But it's gotten to the point now where he's tried to come after me a few times. And when geese do that, it's like they put their head down and they come after you with their heads low to the ground and then they will like bite you. Right. And I'm not afraid of him. I'm like, dude, there is nothing you can do to me that a cat or a dog or a chicken or a wayward fish hook hasn't already done. (laughs) Um, And I'm faster than he is. So it's gotten to this point now where he'll come after me and I'll grab his head. And I'll just, you know, squat down on the ground and I just hold him. And with my other hand, I'll like bite it, you know, with my fingers, I'll bite at his neck, which is what the other geese do. And it is very indignified, it's so much indignity. (laughs) And he hates it. But after he's had that happen to him a few times, he backs off. Like he, he stands there and he looks at me with his head in the air with that evil eye. Like, I think I can take you, but I'm not sure I really want to right now. And he's always got his head up and, you know, his neck back when he follows me around honking at me, but he doesn't attack me unless I go too many days without putting him in his place. And then he starts to get full of attitude again. So this is what's happening with him. And the other male goose, he has his moments of putting his head down and coming at me, but it's more like for show. But he doesn't, he, you know, he's, he'll approach and eat out of my hand and, you know, like, like the geese will. And he's not. It's not like that's his aggressive attitude towards me. It's not personal. It's just like, hey, I'm a boy and this is what I got to do. Sorry. But with the, the one brown goose, now it's personal. He does not like me. So it'll be interesting what happens when spring rolls around next spring when they start getting frisky with each other because they get super aggressive and super like um, protective at that point. And, you know, he gets one shot of going through that get me some Francis babies. And if he doesn't shape up, then I'm going to have to get rid of him because I, I can't afford to have him come after me. Like if it's wet and muddy and I'm on a hill or something and he attacks me and I slip and fall, I'm like, no, I, I, I can't afford that. Or if I've got something, you know, important or breakable in my hands and he comes after me and I can't defend myself. So um, I got to work with him. And then we'll see what happens. Otherwise, he's going to find a new home, and that new home might be, hey, what does goose taste like? (laughs) (laughs) So those are my goose stories. All righty, then. That's a fitting conclusion to that story. So our topic for this week is, as you probably know from looking at the title of the show, what are logic ladders and why do you need to use them? So we have possibly, and I'm not sure because it's been a while and I don't really remember, possibly talked about logic ladders before, but I don't think we've ever done them with examples of what exactly 
a logic ladder is. Like I might have talked about how, you know, a logic ladder is basically in writing. I'm sure it has in other applications a different meaning, whatever, if it even is a real term somewhere else. And I think it is maybe with programming or something. But in uh, in writing, I've I've said like, you know, it's it's you're walking through the characters' processes and things that get you from A to B. But I've never really gone into detail of what it is and I've never offered examples of what a logic ladder would look like. So if you've heard me use the term and you've not really been sure what I was talking about and you wish I go into more detail, today is your lucky day. Woohoo! <laughs> so um, logic ladders are basically written thought processes that essentially answer the question, why? Why did the character come to that conclusion? Why did they take that specific course in action? Why was that their decision and not these billions of other choices they could have chosen? So logic ladders are very specific to individual plot points. And it might be possible to create a single logic ladder that covers everything about why characters doing what they're doing in the whole story. I don't know. If such a thing exists, then it would have to be probably a very simple linear story. But the closer reality is that you're going to need a logic ladder for probably every major turn or decision that the character's making. So like, if the character is making a choice or comes to a conclusion or takes a course of action that isn't blatantly the only thing they could do in that moment or the only thing that makes sense, then the logic ladder is what gives it that. So I was recently reading um, a couple of my own books since part of my go back and familiarize myself with my character quest. And um, I've read The Vessel a couple times now in the last few months. And The Vessel has a lot of really good examples of logic ladders in them. And the reason why I think that book in particular has so many good examples is because that book is condensed. Like it moves really, really fast. We're very, very close inside the character's head. And it's just this very aggressive driven agenda that she's on. And so the logic ladders are very in your face. This is why, this is why, this is why. So it makes it really easy to pull them out because it's almost like they're exaggerated, uh, more so than you would see in a longer book with a lot more time to develop ideas or whatever. It doesn't mean they don't exist in the other books. It's just they're really blatant in this one. So I pulled out a few examples and then also had a few, I think one or two from the catch that I could use. So here's an example of what I would call a basic logic ladder. And what this is doing is it's giving us subtext to what's already obvious. So there's no way for me to do this without spoilers. I apologize. If the story matters and you don't want spoilers, then you should just pause here, go read the vessel. It's a very quick read um, and come back and you won't have anything ruined for you. But otherwise it's impossible to do this without spoilers. So. Basic logic ladder. So in this context, the context for this one is the narrative is telling us about shipyard hierarchy. Um, Monroe has worked very hard to get herself to this place where she's um, believed to be an undocumented immigrant. And she's talking, the narrative is talking about this shipyard that she's interested in. And it's talking about the hierarchy 
of the workers who are there, which gets us to this part. Lower still were the undocumented underclass who for slave wages toiled at dangerous and exhausting work that required no skill, no proof of ability, work that no self-respecting local would touch. Monroe had come for that work. She wanted that work. So that's the setup right there. And then what we get that follows is an explanation as to why. And that's why I call it, this is a really basic logic letter because it's adding subtext to the obvious. This is the unobvious to the obvious. We already know that Monroe is trying to get into that yard, but now she really wants the work, not just access. Why? Why? And here's the logic ladder. She was two days from going hungry, had no papers, and no other way to pay for food and shelter. Her funds were inaccessible without first shedding the immigrant persona, and that couldn't happen until she'd secured what she'd come for. This was the way things had to be. Fear and desperation had fragrances familiar to those who wore them, and their absence would mark her as a fraud. So the logic ladder is telling us, here's why. Here's why she wants that work on a deeper level than just, hey, she needs to get into that shipyard to get something, right? Very basic. Here's an example of a course of action logic ladder. And this is a type of ladder that explains major plot points and it answers the question, why is a character doing this specific thing and not any of these other dozens of things? And it closes down the, well, that's convenient that she chose to do that and sort of the sense of a contrived plot point. And it does it by narrowing the course of action down to it being the only course of action. And so here's the context before it, which is narrative. Oh, wait, no, this is not narrative. This is me explaining it to you. Okay. So she spent a month building this persona of this undocumented immigrant, and she's done it for the express purpose of becoming invisible or an interchangeable cog, as she refers to it elsewhere, in this particular shipyard. And there's so much weight like scene setting and narrative and detail that goes into getting her into this specific shipyard. So the question is why? Why there? Why does it matter? Why is she focused on this and not any dozen of other things? Why is this plot point important to the overall story? The context in the narrative leading up to the logic ladder is this. The Amrakan II had led her here, and that's the name of the ship. Every water vessel had an origin, and within that origin was the beginning of provenance, the trailhead that led from the yacht's construction to its first owner and eventually to the next. And here's the logic ladder of why the shipyard. She'd tried shortcuts before leaving Monaco had run through charter services, hoping that the yacht, like many yachts this size, had been put on the market for weekly or monthly rental, a way for the owners to mitigate the enormous expense of maintaining a ship and full-time crew during the times when the owners were away, and for her, a far simpler way to gain access to the layout and structure than diagrams and schematics. And she'd tried tracking. Yachts this size, state-of-the-art and expensive as they were, carried AIS, maritime transponders, that helped to avoid collision and allowed rescue missions to locate vessels in distress. Information easily located online if one knew where to look. Certainly, the yacht used AIS, but she hadn't found it 
and would have been suspicious if she had. He knew she was coming after all. He had to know. So what that logic ladder does is it acknowledges all these other options, all the other courses of action she could have taken, and it allows us to skip them and just focus on the true plot without it coming coming across as contrived or easy or just there because we wanted to show off this particular scene or whatever. And so this type of logic ladder is saying, yeah, those other routes might have led to what I want, but they bombed. So here I am doing this. And it's answering, in essence, the question, why? Why here? Why now? And we don't have to write out all those scenes that show her doing all those other things that would add all the weight in the wrong direction. We can just focus on the plot and a, a logic ladder that walks us through all of those details. It just shortcuts us right to where we need to go. So here's an example of what I guess we could call a conversion logic ladder. And in this case, the plot point actually is contrived. So Monroe gets the work she wants. She gets in there, right? And she's assigned to a job that gives her easy access to the information she's trying to find. Now, I could have written that like a dozen different ways to make it more complicated, make her work harder to be able to get the information, make it more difficult. But this was the way to do it with the fewest words. And the, the, I just, I needed to get things moving. I needed to get, like, we'd already exhausted this part of the plot point and I needed to move her on to the next place. So this was the easiest way to do it, was making it convenient. But because it was too easy, it had that potential to feel contrived and convenient, right? So I used a logic ladder to reverse that. So here's the context that leads up to the, the ladder. And this is what's going through her mind, right? To succeed without risk of exposure or retaliation required immersion, required becoming the man beyond suspicion. One had to become the illusion, and yet, and yet here she was after so much time and effort to become that man, holding him up and cleaning the floors of the Yacht Yard's offices, this was a job that took her far, far away from beyond suspicion. So I'm addressing that right there, up front, in her thoughts, right? And here comes the logic ladder. She hadn't had a choice in the work assigned, had created the immigrant persona with the intent of securing menial and unwanted labor down in the manufacturing zone, couldn't have predicted this turn of events where she'd been gifted with simple access that would make her quest easier, but not without requiring additional time to create a deeper illusion. And from there in the story, it shows how she worked to switch her act over that people thought she was an idiot, like simple in low IQ, so that she would become the man without, beyond suspicion. So I made it easy for her because it was the fastest and easiest way to get out of here and use a logic ladder to reverse it and make it look like I'd actually made it harder. And it works. So the next one is an example of what I call preempting a course of action. And this one is basically saying, let me stop you right there. Here are all the obvious options and directions I could go with this. But I've got something else in mind, just put a pin in that for now. That's what the character is doing to the audience, right? So in context, that leads up to the latter. She'd entered Monaco with a face, had left Monaco with the yacht's name and flag state. Now she had the designs, the schematics, 
the corporation to which the yacht had been sold, and the name and business address of the man who'd signed as agent on behalf of the buyer. Logic ladder goes. It wasn't her target's name. This she knew without the need for verification. What that part right there does completely cuts off having to spend time going off in a different direction of the story, but addresses the fact that there is a different direction it could go. Continuing, discovering her target's identity here on these legal documents would have been too easy, would have been incongruent with the requisites for tax shelter, privacy, and mitigating liability. The more highly valued the asset, the more complicated the structure of the shielding it would be. She'd check, but chances were the corporation on the sales contract was also a dead end, likely a subsidiary of a shell, of a shelter, of something that would lead nowhere. And tracking the agent of a ghost business wasn't even worth a last-ditch effort should everything else fail. But she hadn't come for these details. So it's addressing all of those things, saying, yep, there's all these other possibilities, all these other course of action she could take to follow this trail to find this yacht. Put a pin in that. She's got other plans, right? So now whatever she does next, that is her course of action. We're not sitting there going, why didn't she do this? Why didn't she do that? Because we've just logic laddered it into being. So now here's an example of a course of action, an actual course of action logic ladder. And in this particular case, it's used to eliminate all the other possibilities and narrow down to what the character does to just what's plot specific. So it's addressing all the other options and clearing them off the slate and saying, no, 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 here's why we're doing this. So here's the context leading up to it. Monroe sat cross-legged on the bed, balancing an index card against a knee while big, thick print transformed a single fact into ink that filled the white space. Finished with the card, she set it on top of a small stack and continued this way, card by card, until every connecting point in this international spider's web had a marker of its own and there was no piece left unaccounted for. She shuffled the cards and dealt them out in sadist's poker. And sadist is referring to something else in the story. Placing each fact face up in an ordered array. A face. A yacht. The name of the yacht captain. A Cayman Corporation. Two European AGs. Those are corporations. And the names of law firms and lawyers in three countries. Far too many lawyers. Each part of which was in some way connected to her target and his yacht. Choice was in the picking. The man with the most to lose was always the first to speak. Now here's the ladder. Monroe stood and with her eyes tracing out the lines before her walked the edge of the bed, following piece to piece, mind stretching out, move against move, stretching to where each fragment would lead, every name, every fact had the potential eventually to take her to them. And there was this. She reached over the center of the bed and picked up the card that she'd placed as the hub within the spokes. The name and phone number of a contact a man involved in the registration of the yacht in the Caymans, a name not listed on any of the documents, a name that did not sit on any board, a man who, by appearances, was not authorized to sign on behalf of any entity, merely a man within a maze of lawyers who hired others and wanted to be kept informed. So in this particular instance, in that letter, we don't necessarily know what that means. But it's deliberate because we know that Monroe does and that her choice is being made for a specific reason. And I did it this way because 
trying to include the meaning of why she honed in on that particular name all in one go, it would have just totally killed the suspense. We needed to get it moving. And in this particular instance, I split the logic ladder by waiting until we had more of the show, more information, more action. And I used the second half of that or the bottom half of that ladder to jump to a second logic ladder. And this is so here's an example of continuing logic ladder and then using it as a jump, right? He was a man who expected to be kept in contact, whose number was intended as a failsafe for a lawyer should there be issues elsewhere. He was a man who would know. He would be part of her target's inner circle, would be privy to name and nationality, home address, and sources of income. But these were details that held little interest in the moment. In the glut of information, she had a dozen ways to find these types of minutiae easier and faster than making a trip to Graz. Names could be changed. Identity shielded, companies closed. She had no desire to perpetually pursue her target around the globe. The inexperienced attempted to chase down every bit. That's like logic within logic. What she wanted, needed, was the yacht. Find it once, and she would have her target forever. The yacht was his lair, the place he fed his addictions, his need, his craving, was where he would always feel safest and yet be the weakest. The yacht was where he would return no matter how long he kept away or where he traveled, and no matter how protected he might be at home, by car, with walls and bodyguards, cameras, and bulletproof glass, she could get to him on the water. So this jump is a major reveal. Not a plot reveal, a logic reveal, in the sense that it's taking all these smaller ladders and all these prior plot points and it's tying them together in a way that it's answering this all the pending why questions to what it is she's really up to or really after or how all these various threads are connected. Ah, she's not going after a person. She's going after the ship to get the person. And from that point, all the prior logic ladders that have led to this, they just kind of snap into place and you get it, right? That's what a logic ladder will do for you. She's laying out her logic, her reasoning, so that whenever she goes to the next step, it makes perfect sense that she decided to do that thing. It's not random. It's not like, wh wh why didn't she do this other thing over there instead? That would have been so much easier. She's eliminated it as an option ahead of time and told you, here's where I'm going, right? Here is an example of a quasi ladder. So this is not really a full on answer to why to something, but it does cut off the why questions before they start before they even start by establishing sort of expertise and skipping the details on where she looked or how she pulled information. She's just giving you the basics of it, right? She's trying to find someone, right? And so it's not a quasi letter because it's not, I mean, it's a quasi letter and not a full logic letter because it's not eliminating options. It's not showing why she chose a certain thing. But it sort of mimics that in that it's cutting off those why questions. So here's the narrative from her point of view. How simple a thing it was to find a person when that person had no idea he was being hunted and had made no effort to hide. Name, birth date, spouse, children, school, social media, shopping preferences, all obtainable without ever putting foot to pavement or stepping away from a desk. And then it goes on to talk about, um, you know, privacy and uh, data aggregation, and, so, and then goes to say, of those 
who knew few cared enough to change habits. If one wasn't doing anything illegal, what need was there to hide? By the time they saw the need, if they ever did, it would be too late. And so we've established her expertise, talked about the scenario, but we don't actually show how she did it. And we don't need to because the logic ladder cut that off for us. So here's an example of split course of action. And this is where the setup to the logic ladder or like part of the logic ladder happens quite a bit first and then a bunch of action happens and then the the end of it kicks in, the, the book ends, right? And this is actually taken from the catch. And in context, um, big uh, fight has taken uh, place on a ship and Monroe is deciding to jump ship. And this is important because if you know anything about being on the open ocean, leaving a ship to head out where you don't know where you are is just absolutely stupid. Um, so for those who knew that, it's important to get this logic out of the way so that it's not stupid and it seems like the, a logical decision at the time. And for those who don't know, it's important to lay out that it's stupid and why she did it anyway. So the context was this. To leave the freighter and head into the open ocean like this would be a death sentence. But there was no way these men had gotten so far with just the gas in the engine's tank somewhere nearby. And yet far enough away that Leo's men with their night vision hadn't picked it out was a mothership that held what she wanted. Where's the fuel, she said. And so she's talking to the, a guy who's sitting in the boat that she wants to steal to get off the freighter. And um, so there's this huge conversation, action, la la la, and basically she leaves the ship, just out into the pitch black, no idea where she is. Her willing, well, I mean, she knows she's off the coast of Somalia, but she doesn't know where or how far. Her willingness to leave the ship, to run from a fight she might possibly win into the arms of certain death if lost at sea, had been based entirely on the innate desire to stay alive. Not hers, but that of the man in the boat who wanted to live far more than she did. She trusted her instinct and his desire for self-preservation. And you don't see this right there in that little spot because it happened in the action in between. But he's not freaking out about leaving the ship. He he knows where the, the more fuel is and he's confident in it. So that's why it's talking about his desire for self-preservation, because she promised him that if he got her to that fuel, she'd let him go. So that's a logic ladder that that is split between action and that cover it bookends it so that it makes sense. And this is our last one. And this is an example of a preemptive course of action logic ladder. And it's it's similar to the preemptive logic ladder earlier, only this one differs slightly because there's no I've got something else in mind. Let's just put a pin in that going on here. This the entire purpose of this one is to cut off future paths and narrow the plot in sort of a needle in a haystack search by saying, let me stop you right there. There may be other ways to find this needle, but I'm pretty sure I've already got my magnet. And so when other attempts just don't ever go anywhere and she stops looking in other directions and focuses back in on this one, there's no question in your mind about why, because she's already preemptively told you why. So the the context is she's just left the Hawaladar and he's like, um, he's Somali money changer, works off of trust where 
you have a friend in another place who has a hundred dollars and you tell that friend, you know, give 50 of that dollar of $50 to Joe and I'll give you 50 credit here. And the next time somebody needs $50 from one of your guys here, I'll give that to them and then we'll be even. That's kind of a really oversimplified way of doing it. But it's someone who would know the flow of money and also the flow of information that comes with it. When she left him, she did so with the conviction that no matter how many other lines for information she might lay out or whose path she crossed in this search, she'd already found the man whose connections would lead her to what she needed. And then later, following up on that, she plotted the lines for information she'd put out today against the one she would throw tomorrow. There was danger in opening too many too fast. The more people asking questions, the greater odds that word would leak that she was on the hunt, and those who might previously have been willing to talk would become suspicious and grow silent. So that's a logic ladder preempting the question of, well, why didn't she go here to look for information? Why didn't she go there? It's like it shuts it down now. And we never talk about it again in the plot because we've already dealt with it now and the plot can just go forward as it needs to go. And that is my explanation of what logic letters are and why you need to use them. <laughs> that was fantastic. I, uh, I, I love that. This, this goes way up on the list of my all-time favorite shows. <laughs> That's awesome. And this is something that you have, just from hearing you read those, I, I recognize that as, as just a, a staple of, of your writing. There are always those things in there that explain why the character's thinking the way they're thinking. And I'm curious how you developed that. Was that something that you innately knew as a storyteller or did you learn that? Or did you just see places that where the story was falling apart and you needed to do that? Um, I think it developed as, um, <laughs> okay. After the first book where, um, you know, went through the copy edit process, the editorial process. Part of that feedback, you get a lot of why. Why didn't she do this? Why did she do that? Blah, blah, blah. Stuff that's not really clarified in the text. And then you're forced to go back and really analyze your plot. And a lot of times, if you haven't answered it, people will come in and say, well, why doesn't she do this instead? Maybe she could this and maybe she could that. And it's like, turns your story into this mess of wandering all into other different things. And so I think it initially started as a matter of self-preservation of saying, leave my freaking story alone. Don't touch it. Here's why she's not doing this. <laughs> <laughs> and also in answer to any why questions that I really don't understand. Why did she know that she was supposed to talk to this guy and not go over here to all these other places? I'm like, okay, let me explain that to you here in the text. Nobody else answers that, asks me that question. And that's sort of how I think this, this idea of logic ladders develop to the point where now they become just part of this thought process thing. But I also noticed, and I, I want to talk about this in another episode, well, one of the book club episodes I do for The, the Catch is that The Catch has logic letter, ladders, but it's missing a lot of the ones that tell you what she's thinking and why she's doing it in advance. And you don't actually, you see her doing these things and the logic ladders make sense for each small individual thing, but you never have a complete overview of the plot until you get to the end. 
And I have thoughts on that, but I'm not going to put them here. <laughs> so we're going to do another 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 episode for that that's going to go specifically to Patreon. All righty. Well, uh, thank you very much for this. It's been fantastic. I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. Thank you, Taylor. Um, we will be back again with you next Tuesday. Thanks for being here, guys. See you next week.